Now, we looked at verses 1 and 2 here uh, on a Sunday morning. This was one of the times when I, uh, the topic on Sunday morning was focused on these two verses specifically. So we're gonna, we won't spend nearly as much time on these as we did then, uh, but uh, we're going to look at some things perhaps that we didn't look at then. So let's pray so that we'll understand the word, and then let's get into this. Father, I just thank you so much for the privilege of uh, learning from your word, and I thank you for the privilege of teaching your word. And I pray that each person who uh, listens to this study will receive from you and will apply what they, uh, what they receive to their personal lives. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so... Um, here we have the Apostle Paul who has gone through the first 11 chapters of Romans and talked about basically theology. He's focused on God's side of the equation. This is what God has done. This is what uh, God has made available to us. We stand by grace and we, uh, our entire Christianity is based not on what we do, but on what God has done. However, as the late Dallas Willard said, grace, remember, we stand by grace, grace is opposed to uh, earning, not effort, right? Or I think the way he said it is, grace, grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. So what that means is, you're not earning your salvation. You're not trying to build up good works. You're not trying to, to load yourself up with good karma so that you can get into heaven. That's not gospel Christianity. That's not biblical Christianity. Now, there are some denominations in some Christian churches uh, that you know, it would seem that that's exactly what you're doing. You're just trying to be good so that God will get on your side and give you a spot in heaven, right? Um, but that's not the gospel. Romans has presented the gospel, which is Jesus Christ came to earth and made us right with God, put us in right standing with God by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. And when we put our faith in Jesus, then by virtue of that faith, by virtue of that trust, I am in Christ, and because of his righteousness, I am counted righteous. Then what? That's what the therefore is here for. Whenever you see a therefore in Scripture, you should ask yourself, what is the therefore, therefore? Okay? Well, the therefore doesn't come at the beginning of this sentence. He says, I appeal to you, therefore. And ESV is far more literal than most translations. And in actuality, uh, therefore is, is in a post-positive position in the original Greek text. So this pretty much follows that um, that word order, but don't be deceived because therefore is, you know, the fifth word in that sentence. Believe it or not, that little word therefore in Greek, it's just three letters, right? Un is what it is in Greek, omnicron, upsilon, nu. That little particle sums up the entirety of the first 11 chapters of Romans. He's saying, therefore, with all this theology that I just taught you, what are you going to do about it? I appeal to you. And this is a pretty strong word, okay? He's urging us. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, and I've mentioned this to you previously. If you're a lady, don't worry about the whole brothers thing and us needing to be um, uh, 
politically correct about that. In reality, he was talking to both the men and the women in the congregation, and by including the women with the brothers, he was elevating their status, right? So it really doesn't matter what the gender is here. Understand that you are elevated to that same position, that there is equality. We call this ontological equality, that is equality of being. And that's the way God looks at it. So if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says that in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. In other words, he created humanity in the image of God, and that breaks itself down into male and female, all right? So we are in the image of God. So I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, or if you prefer, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, What does he mean, the mercies of God? Well, that's what he's outlined for us in the first 11 chapters. This is all about God's mercy. So let's just think about the word mercy versus the word word grace. Grace is a gift that we don't deserve. Mercy means that the punishment that we do deserve is not um, poured out on us, right? Mercy means that we deserve something bad, we deserve wrath, we deserve punishment, and God has withheld that. That's his mercy. And his grace is that he offers us this gift of justification, of eternal life, right? So in one sense, you could say that mercy is withholding the bad stuff, and grace is giving you the good stuff. Does that make sense? So there are two two sides of the same equation, if you will, right? By the mercies of God, then he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Or uh, this could actually be, uh, it's the word logikos, and it could actually be the statement, uh, could actually uh, be rendered your, this is your reasonable service of worship is the way that it, uh, it could be stated. And uh, in all honesty, I kind, of, uh, I kind of favor that particular translation. So the question then for you is, what is your response to God's grace? Right? God gives you grace. People take advantage of God's grace. And, you know, if you were here Sunday morning, uh, you heard me use uh, our, my late buddy Jonathan as a, an extended analogy of acceptance, Right? You know, I was hanging around those kids, and those of you that knew me at the time knew that I was really exhausted, right? I mean, first of all, they were middle schoolers. Most of the time I was hanging out with them, and they were exhausting middle schoolers. They really, really were. They were not easy kids. Um, And um, I enjoyed being around them for about the first year, and then after that, I just told them, you know, I love you guys, but a lot of times I just don't like you right? And it was just because of their behavior, right? And I just struggled through all this, but I continued to love them and I continued to accept them. I even wrote a, a piece, uh, call it an editorial, I don't know what you want to call it, but I think I posted it on Facebook at the time about uh, grace and how people abuse grace, right? People are given gifts and opportunities and they just take advantage of those and show limited or no gratitude for those gifts. Well, our response for God's offer of grace should be gratitude, right? Right? Listen to this. This is very interesting. It, it, <clears throat> this is from a commentary by John Stott, and he's quoting another commentator named F.F. Uh, uh, F. Bruce, 
who is quoting even another commentator. So this is what it says. It was well said by Thomas Erskine of Linlathan, Linlathan that, quote, in the New Testament, religion is grace and ethics is gratitude. Ethics, those are your principles, the principles for how you behave. So the religion of Christianity, you've often heard people say Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. But honestly, although we might have a distaste for that term religion or kind of the feeling behind that, the reality is religion just means that you know this is what we practice, this is what we do in regard to our relationship with God. Well, the Christian religion is about grace, but Christian ethics, why we behave, why we present ourselves to God and we care about uh, the way we present ourselves to human beings is out of gratitude to God. It is not by accident that in Greek, one and the same noun, charis, does duty for both grace and gratitude. Isn't that interesting? Same word. It can be translated grace or gratitude, charis. In fact, we're going to study, ideally if I get that far today, we're going to study about the, the grace gifts, right? The spiritual gifts, and they're called charismata, right? Same word. They're grace gifts. God's grace, far from encouraging or condoning sin, is the spring and foundation of righteous conduct. So the Apostle Paul headed off the possibility that someone say, would say, well, if it's about grace then I'm just going to live my life the way I want to live my life. If God's just going to give me more grace and he's going to cover all my sin, then why shouldn't I sin? And the apostle Paul said, may it never be. And that, that was chapter 6 of Romans, and that's when we saw uh, that the apostle Paul uh, appealed to baptism as our uh, symbolic understanding of being buried to an old life with Christ and being raised to a new life with Christ. He said, may it not ever be. Don't you know that those of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, you too might be raised to walk in newness of life. So the Apostle Paul laid a theological foundation for that, right? Well, I want to come back to it again then. What is your response to God's grace? Who do you live for? You see, when he says, offer your body or present your bodies as a living sacrifice, he's telling you, because of what God has done for you, you owe this to him. It's your reasonable service of work. It's only reasonable for you. Jesus Christ gave up his life for you. He died in your place. It's only reasonable that you would offer him your earthly life. And he gets real literal with this. He says, offer him your body. Well, see, everything that you do in this life, you do with your body. That's how this mental state, this spiritual state, right? Spiritual state, wherever you want to locate that in a physical sense, that's how that works itself out. So this is why, the, you know, James, the first pastor of the Jerusalem church and Jesus' half-brother, said that faith without works is dead. You can say you have faith all day long. People say they're Christians all the time. But what does that even mean, Right? Well, you show what it means by what you do with this. Where do you take this? What do you use this for? How do you involve yourself in other people's lives with this right here, right, in various ways? So we offer our bodies as live sacrifices. Well, here's a quote from John Chrysostom, who was a, um, 
one of the church fathers, we could call him, uh, from, I think, like the 7th century Chrysostom uh, preached. How can the body become a sacrifice? Let the eye look on no evil, and it is a sacrifice. Let the tongue utter nothing base, and it is an offering. Let the hand work no sin, and it is, and understand what this word meant in its original context, and it is a holocaust, right? This is a, you know, an offering. But more this suffices not. But because we must actively exert ourselves for good, the hand giving alms, the mouth blessing them that curse us, the ear ever at leisure for listening to God. So that's how Chrysostom is saying that we offer our bodies as live sacrifices to God. So you offer your body, yourself, as a continually living sacrifice. And this, of course, is in contrast to the dead animal sacrifices that were offered in the temple, right? So that dead animal was representative of the death that you and I owe to God because of our sin. But that debt of death has been paid. That's why there's no more temple. That's why there's no more animal sacrifices, right? People would place their hands on the head of that that sheep, right? That ox, that goat, whatever. And it was a symbol of transferring their sins onto the body of that animal. Now, again, this was always symbolic. It had to point forward to Christ, who was the reality. Christ became our sin, right? That we might become the righteousness of God in him. The animals merely pointed to that. Jesus is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world by John the Baptist, right? The love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That's the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. We don't owe God a debt of death any longer. We owe him our lives. That's what gratitude says. Now, God doesn't require us to do anything but offer him our trust, right? That we believe in Jesus, that we open ourselves up to him. We invite his spirit to come inside. But moment by moment throughout the day, you exercise your will and you offer this body as a live sacrifice to God. In everything you do, in every thought you think, in every word that you say, you're constantly offering this as a live sacrifice. It is both reasonable and spiritual that my response to Christ, uh, to Christ's sacrifice, be to offer up my body for his service. And indeed, that's why that word that is used there, uh, this is your Uh, spiritual worship, in some translations, it it says this is your reasonable worship, right? It is spiritual, it is reasonable. Even though it is my physical body, I'm not offering my body like an animal sacrifice on an altar, right? It is reasonable in the sense that, well, it, it, it only makes sense, right? But it's also my rational service, right? It is, in a sense, a mental offering because my intellect is involved in this process. I have to make a decision to do it. Every day, I have to make a decision. So when you call Jesus Lord, you give him authority over your whole life. You give him authority over your body. But see, the interesting thing is that um, 
to present your body uses a word that means that I still retain control of my body. It's like putting your house on the market as a rent to own, right? I've got uh, some relatives right now who are older and they're living in an apartment, but they would like to have a little bit more freedom, but they're old enough to where they don't they can't put themselves in a 30-year lease because they're not going to live 30 years. Um, at least they don't believe they will. And so they can't afford a 15-year mortgage, so they want to get into a rent-to-own situation. So I want you to imagine you have a house, and you decide that you want to offer it as a rent-to-own to you know, a family, let's say. And let's say you decide, rather than offering it at market value, you want to offer it at a rate that they can afford. Why? Because you love them. You care about them. You're concerned for them. You, you have compassion on them. So you offer your home you know, for a price that they can afford, even though it's not really profiting you that much. So let's say a few years go by, and they're in the home, and they're enjoying the home, and uh, boy, the market really starts to uh, to go up and up like it is now. Our rents now are just, they're obscene. This is the other reason why my relatives are looking to move out of their apartment because it just keeps increasing in price. You know, rent's just ridiculous. Um, so let's say, you know, you, a couple years go by and you're like, wow, you know, I, I did this rent-to-own deal with, with this family and all, but I could be making a lot of money on this house right now either by selling it outright or by doing a lease or by doing a rent-to-own with somebody who wants to actually pay market value. Come on. Well, see, here's the thing. You retain control over the house, but they're living in it. Now, this is kind of a weird analogy, I realize, but when you say Jesus is Lord, you've actually given him ownership of your life, but you really do retain control, and you know that. You wake up every day and do what you're going to do. So moment by moment throughout the day, you are exercising your will and offering yourself as a living sacrifice. It's also interesting that this word present, for present your body uh, as a living sacrifice, is the word that is used, it's the same Greek word that is used in Luke chapter 2, verse 22, when it talks about presenting the baby Jesus in the temple. Um, the Levitical law said that the firstborn that opens the womb belonged to the Lord. And because the family actually kept the firstborn, and because you know we weren't practicing some sort of strange religion uh, like some of the religions in the land of Canaan uh, that were the reason God threw those people out of the land of Canaan, where they actually offered their newborn children as burnt offerings on an altar of you know, a god like Molech. And uh, there were a number of gods in Canaan that that, uh, that that was true for. But God said, no, the firstborn belongs to me. So you're going to have to redeem the firstborn by presenting me with an offering. And so that's why someone who was poor would offer uh, two um, turtle doves or two young pigeons. Someone who was a little wealthier would offer uh, a sheep, an unblemished lamb, and a turtle dove or a young pigeon. Well, because of the statement in Luke chapter 2, we know that Jesus' family was not wealthy because they didn't offer the sheep. They offered the two turtle doves or the two pigeons, all right? But I'm relating that story to you because I want you to understand where this word present fits in. So just as they presented the baby Jesus 
okay, to the Lord. In fact, in all honesty, it's very similar to what we do when we dedicate a baby in here. And we do that all the time. And, you know, a lot of you have been around and you've seen us dedicate. In fact, Craig came up to me Sunday and he said, we haven't dedicated Shiloh yet. I said, no, you haven't. He said, I just forgot. <laughs> I said, you know, parents have their own reasons for these things. And, you know, typically a baby dedication involves uh, getting the family to come, right? You know, and, uh, but what we're doing is we're offering that child to the Lord and really we're offering ourselves and we're saying, we want to do whatever you, Lord, will use us to do to bring this child to you so that at the earliest possible age, the child will choose to believe in you, to serve you, and to love you. But we're dedicating, we're presenting that child to the Lord. Does this all make sense to you? All right. This is what we're talking about when we're talking about you presenting yourself to the Lord as a living sacrifice, right? Um, so, the way this works is quite practical. I don't serve myself any longer. Where do I go? What do I do? What is my motivation for every word and action? I go where and do what the Lord commands and leads. My motivation is love for Jesus, not self-interest and the profit motive and self-protection and competition. I seek God's will and he reveals it because my heart is willing to do his will. Listen to what Jesus promised. In Luke 7, 17, he said, if anyone is willing to do God's will, he will know whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. So people say all the time, I don't know what God's will is. I'm just confused. Well, first of all, are you willing to do his will? If he were to reveal his will to you, would you be obedient and do it? Oh, well, no, I just want it as an option. That's not the way it works. See, when God speaks, it's not optional. You still have a will. You can still rebel, but there are consequences for that. When God speaks, when God reveals, Hebrew, by its nature, is a verbal language. In other words, English is largely a noun-oriented language. It's about person, places, things, ideas, and then verbs are how those relate to each other. But it's very interesting. Hebrew is a very verbal language. Everything revolves around these verbs. And so... I think that that's in keeping with God who chose uh, the, the Hebrew people who is an action-oriented God. Consider, how did God create the universe? He spoke. What is Jesus called? The Word of God. God doesn't ever speak so that you'll have another option to consider. When God speaks, we're supposed to act, all right? So as a result... When God reveals his will to us, it is because he sees that we're willing to do his will. Well, in the next verse, uh, we can see how this works itself out as well. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So, I spent a lot of time on this the Sunday morning that I preached about it. Um, but what we have are two competing value systems. We have our culture and its values. And in all honesty, we're more married to our culture, more enmeshed in our culture, and inured to our culture 
than we realize. When we send kids to school, we're enculturating them. That's why, you know, you send kids to school and even you send your kids to nursery school, right? You send them to preschool and you get them back and you're like, who taught you that? It's not just the teachers that are teaching them. It's the other kids that are teaching them. By virtue of their involvement in our society, they are learning these values. So you may say, yeah, but I'm teaching them something different. So how is it that they're learning? Where did my kid get this? It's an enculturation process. So there's a value system. Now, once our culture was very strongly focused on the Bible, although uh, there were many problems, obviously. There were many departures from biblical teaching and from you know, Christianity and so forth. But still, there was that foundation that was there that you could appeal back to. Honestly, uh, it was because of this and because of the, the conscience, even of the hard-hearted racists of the 50s and 60s, that Martin Luther King Jr. was able to push through his agenda because you had a country that recognized that he was right. I read an article not too long ago that said, if Dr. King had done that today, it probably wouldn't have worked because there's just no longer that, uh, that agreement. There, there's no longer that acclamation that, you know, no, that this is right and this is wrong and the Bible is true and that sort of thing. There's not any sort of, uh, of agreement when it concerns that. We have an antichrist culture. That's what I keep telling you. It's not just a godless culture. We've had a godless culture for some time. We have a culture that is actively opposed to Christian values. So much so that Christians in many churches have chosen to change their value systems in order to continue to get people to come. Because if you speak out against some of these things, people just stop coming to your church. They don't want to hear it. They're going to go somewhere else. And, you know, we've gotten, we're a consumer-oriented culture, and, I mean, you can, you can curate everything, including your social media. You know, if you only want to hear certain voices, then you just unfriend these others. You tune out all of these other people. We don't have to get along with these people anymore. We don't have to deal with them. And so as the result, these two sides have moved further and further and further and further apart and scream at each other and hate each other and so forth. But as gospel-believing Christians, we're not to be conformed to this world, and it doesn't matter whether that is you know, the culture that is still on the right or the culture that is on the left. What we want to do is we want to be formed by the Word of God. So don't be conformed. Don't be squeezed into the mold of this world, but be transformed. So conformed is largely an idea of something that is pushing from the outside, right? And transformed is something that happens from the inside and then moves out. And that's definitely the basis of Christianity. Christianity is not about keeping external rules and regulations in an effort to fake it to make it, right? To use a term from uh, the addiction culture, right? I can't tell you how many times I heard that. I was, used to work in mental hospitals back in the day and... Um, I worked on the adolescent unit. Uh, it's called Psychiatric Institute of Fort Worth. Well, our kids weren't crazy. 
um, they had a number of issues that they struggled with, but most of the time, especially at this time in the late 80s, early 90s, psychiatric institute, and then I also worked for Charter Hospital for a brief period of time, um, people's insurance paid for psychiatric treatment. So if they had behavior problems with their kids, or if their kids had drug problems, they just sent them to a psych hospital. And the kids stayed there as long as their parents' insurance could pay for them. It was a miracle how often the hospital said, hey, you're fixed, at the exact moment that their insurance gave out, right? Hey, your parents can't pay anymore. I think you're doing just fine. Go on out there. So, um, but I, you know, I had these kids, uh, these young people in that particular world, um, and I saw how their value systems were shaped, molded by the culture and by this present evil age. Um, and that's exactly, uh, some translations will say, um, don't be conformed to this world. That's this translation. The, the word there is actually ion, which means age or era. Okay? So think of, you know, our time. This is our time, our, the, the period in which we live. Okay? Um, there's, a, there's a German word that is often used when it concerns uh, the way... Uh, people believe at a particular point in time, the value systems that people share at a particular point in time, the worldview that people have at a particular point in time. And the German word that I'm referring to is zeitgeist, zeitgeist. And it literally, in fact, I had a German lady in here one time um, who uh, validated this. It literally means time ghost, time ghost, right? Often it's translated spirit of the age. What is the spirit of the age, right? Well, our age has a certain spirit to it. The present evil age, that's what we're dealing with. And this present evil age seeks to shape people into its mold. Well, you know, the God of this age is called the devil and Satan. He's a liar and he's the father of lies. His goal is to steal and to kill and to destroy all that the creator loves. He propagates his lies through this antichrist culture, which glorifies perversion, godlessness, and human pride. Most every song, celebrity, book, movie, Amazon series, Netflix series, CBS, ABC, CB, you know, PBS, whatever series, all of these series promote godless values. The media and academia seek to squeeze you into a mold to suit their political purpose, which is ultimately one world government overseen by one world leader that Revelation calls the beast, that John calls the Antichrist. Why does he call the Antichrist? Because this world leader will stand up against Jesus Christ. Even if initially this world leader seems to accept certain Christian values. The last bastion against this is Jesus Christ's authentic church. Here we teach the truth of God's word, and here you experience the presence of the Holy Spirit who teaches and applies the word, and this is how your mind may be renewed and your life transformed from within so that you can resist the forces of evil from without. I don't have time to get into it, but we are closer to 
a scenario where one world government could come to be than we have ever been. And we've been given a brief reprieve right now. And most of us don't like the way this has come about because there's so much rancor and hatred and evil that have gone on. But we, we're in a, there's a brief reprieve right now. I'm still able to teach the gospel openly. I'm still able to say that certain things are wrong even if uh, you know, the government says that they're acceptable. But a time is coming when that will just simply be illegal. I, I, I believe there will be a time when I will not be able to say that homosexuality is wrong or I will get fined, or I'll get put in jail. It's just the way it's going to be. You watch. You watch. But if we're going to be the church of Jesus Christ, then we're going to have to hold to the values that Scripture teaches. You need to hang on. It's a war. No question about it. But it's only one through love. Okay? Well, let's move on to the next passage of, uh, of Scripture here. And we won't have a ton of time to spend... Uh, in this section, but this is uh, about spiritual gifts. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, sound judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts according, or excuse me, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So what he's saying is one person shouldn't exalt himself or herself above others because of their position in society or because of their popularity or because of their natural charisma. Um, interestingly, the word charisma comes from this word that really means grace gift. But when we think of charisma, we think of somebody that has charm and they just have a natural ability to win people over and so forth. So James chided uh, those that he wrote to about uh, elevating the wealthy in their church. He's, you know, James said, what happens when a rich person comes into your church and you see somebody that's poor sitting in the front of the church and you say, hey, why don't you move out of the way so this rich guy can have your seat? Well, the apostle Paul in his way is trying to help us to understand just because you have certain gifts, just because you have certain uh, blessings, if you will, in your life, doesn't elevate you above other people. God has a purpose and he has a role and a responsibility and a function for you in the church. Believe it or not, that's not just to sit and listen to me teach. God has something or several somethings for you to do in this local New Testament church, but also for you to do uh, in his kingdom, in the church as it expresses itself all over the world. Now, I would love to spend more time on this statement, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, because we do live in a narcissistic culture, and many of us do think of ourselves uh, more highly than is warranted. Um, 
However, that's interesting because a lot of times that's an effort to cover for insecurities, right? Uh, listen to the scripture here. We have no need for that. We have no need to elevate ourselves above one another. Understand that you can, in all honesty, uh, claim yourself to be one of God's peculiar people. We're not the noble people. We're not the cool people. We're not the popular people. Maybe you were in school. I don't know, right? Uh, but we're God's peculiar people. That's what he called his uh, people in the Old Testament. But listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians of the Corinthians. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. That's you and I. We're the foolish ones. We're the foolish people that God chose to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. That's you and I. He chose the weak to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So in other words, we don't have any reason to boast in the presence of God. In fact, those who are in positions of power and wealth and fame and so forth, have to lower themselves to get to the place where they're really willing to receive Christ and be the people that God wants us to be, okay? Well, let's take a look at these gifts as I conclude uh, the lesson for this evening. We only have a few more minutes. Um, this is a list of, of charismata or grace gifts. And so like our salvation, we don't earn these gifts. But the chances are and there are more that are listed, by the way. More of these spiritual gifts are listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So this is Romans 12. You can remember, if you want to do a little more study on this, turn over to 1 Corinthians 12 and read that whole chapter. In fact, you can read 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. All three chapters talk about spiritual gifts. But chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians gives a more con a complete list of spiritual gifts. Um, but the listing of the gifts here are prophet, minister, teacher, encourager, giver, leader, and what I will call caregiver, right? So uh, let me get back over to that uh, section there. You can see the, the way the terms that are used here, but I've listed them uh, as something that, that one would identify with, someone would say, I am a prophet, I am a minister, I am a teacher, I am an encourager, I am a giver, I am a leader, I am a caregiver. And the reason why I use those terms in that way, um, it, all of those terms relate to the original Greek terms, but that's because a Bible teacher that I had while I was in college saw that these particular gifts that are listed in Romans 12 are integrally related to the personality of the person who has received that gift. So in other words, a prophet in the early church was an office in the church, right? Someone was recognized as a prophet in the same regard as I'm recognized as a pastor in this church. And people listened to that person because that person was hearing from God and was telling God's word. 
So we often think of a prophet as somebody that foretells the future, but the primary purpose of a prophet is to simply speak God's word. So there is a prophetic function to what I do, although what I'm doing here is teaching, but I'm seeking to impart a specific word of God to you, a specific message from God to you. And so there's a prophetic nature of that. However, I'm not in the office of prophet in the church. Now, the offices that I'm speaking of are listed over in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse 12. So more gifts listed in 1 Corinthians 12. The offices, okay, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. That's over in Ephesians chapter 4. Those are offices within the church. Well, we really don't see the office of apostle. We don't see the office of prophet uh, in churches very, uh, really in most churches, you don't see those as offices. However, the office of apostle could be very similar to a missionary today or somebody who is involved in starting uh, numbers of churches, right? The Apostle Paul went out and started churches, and he was the initial authority over those churches that he started. And then he appointed elders or bishops or pastors in those churches. In other words, people like me in those churches. Um, but here, a prophet represents um, what we could call a motivational gift. This is what moves that person. This is what makes them come alive. So often when we talk about vocation, you know, when you, Sue, when you and I have talked many times about being a teacher and how that just obviously was a calling for you, and it's something that when you got up there in front of that classroom, that made you come alive. That's a calling. It's a gifting. The spiritual gift part of that is teaching the Word of God. I come alive when I get the opportunity to teach. That's why I'm so excited. I mean, I don't know if you get a lot out of this on Wednesday, but I get a lot out of it because it's what I'm supposed to do. This is who I am. This is who I am. This is not just something I do, right? Setting up all this tech, that's something I do. That doesn't make me come alive. It doesn't make me excited at all, right? In fact, it's more like an enigma. It's like a, it's like a puzzle that I can't figure out, but I have to put together. But teaching... That makes me come alive. Somebody just needs to bring a bunch of just tech geeky people to our church that want to do all this stuff, and then you're going to have just better teaching all around because I'm not going to be so distracted. I'm not going to worry about any of that anymore. But there's a lot of things that I do in this church because I have to do them, but that's, that's not my motivation. My motivation is to teach. My motivation is to preach. So a prophet is someone whose motivation is to Speak forth the word of God. And often, if we look at the Old Testament prophets, as I think we should, as a model for this, it is to speak out against wrong, injustice, unrighteousness. Somebody with a prophetic temperament, the prophetic personality, these are people who really, really stir you, but you just don't want to be around them all the time because they just, I mean, they're just constantly on fire. And you're like, dude, I need some water, right? You're burning me up here. Can you calm down? Do you always, no, and we've always got to change, and we've got to do this, and we've got to do this. Now, now, we need to move, we need to move. You know, it's like, okay, 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 okay. <laughs> calm down. Give me a break, right? 
minister. This is where we get our term deacon. Um, ministers in churches, the deacons in the churches are supposed to administrate the resources in the church. And so a prophet operates in accordance with their faith. A minister operates by serving. And there are people that simply have to serve. They really, it's obvious. That's what makes them come alive. They want to serve. They want to help. They're helpers, right? They want to go along and they, and we need these people desperately. They're not people that, you know, <laughs> I've seen this many times in our church. You know, we have, we have people with this gift of service. I mean, you give them something to do, it gets done, right? And you got people that, you know, really not motivated by that. And you ask them to do this, this, or the other thing. And you go and you go over here and you come back and it's still not done, right? It's like, why don't teenagers have the gift of service, right? All right. We talked, about, we talked about teaching, right, and, and the motivation. A teacher is just going to always be teaching. It's so funny. Okay, so it's, it's not out of the realm of possibility that Jubilee will end up being a teacher. A, she always wants to lead. But Jubilee's like three years old and wanting to teach me. Three. How long has she even been talking? Okay. And, it, you know, so I want to teach her. No, she wants to teach me. And she, she wants to be the leader, and she wants you to be in the classroom, and she wants to be telling you, teachers have to teach. They just have to. It, uh, yeah, that's what they do. Um, the person that is the giver is going to give with generosity. It's not enough to just give a buck here and a buck here. The giver wants to give. They want to make money, but they don't want to make money so they can say, hey, I have you know this much money in the bank or I have this car or whatever. This person wants to make money because they want to be able to supply needs. They want to be able to give. That's just their gift. And typically, genuine givers, God always makes sure that they have abundant resources. Now, they may not be considered rich by other people's standards, but these are people that always have something to give because God's going to supply that. The leader, listen, you... If you have to tell people you're the leader, you're not, okay? If you go charging ahead and you say, come on, guys, and nobody's behind me, you're not the leader. You see, people have to follow you if you're the leader. It's interesting. The word here means to stand up in front of people. Now, there, there are two types of leaders, and actually, uh, they're, they're, I skipped over encourager, and I'll come up to, I'm, I'm going to come back to that because an encourager is also a type of leader. But there's a type of leader that stands up in front of people and says, hey, guys, this is what we need to do. This is the vision caster. This is the one who is the basic decision maker. And this is why it says leaders need to lead with diligence. And that's that word you were asking about up there. Okay, It's the word spude, and it means eagerness, diligence, enthusiasm, and I think with a leader, it means decisiveness. Leaders make decisions, and they're able to make decisions. And people listen to leaders, and they believe in leaders, and they follow leaders. Leaders lead, period. That's all. You don't have to urge a leader to lead. A leader is just going to lead because that's who they are, right? There's another kind of leader, and this leader is called an encourager. Now, you may not think of an encourager as a leader, right? There are leaders, and for, forgive the frivolity of this or how frivolous it might sound, but there are leaders and there are cheerleaders. Now, you think of a cheerleader, come on, guys, let's get all excited, right? 
But that's kind of the that's kind of the frothy version of that. You see, you need this type of leader because you've got the leader that casts the vision, and then you've got the leader that is standing with the people, facing, and says, hey, guys, what, they, what that person says, that's right. That's what we need to do. Come on, guys, let's do it. Hey, come on, guys, let's do it. And everybody wants to do it, not just because this leader is leading and casting a vision, but because this leader is saying, let's go. Let's go for it. Let's do it. We can do it. We can do it, guys, Right? And people will follow or people won't follow. Joshua was the leader in the Old Testament, all right, right after Moses. And he sent the spies into the land. They all spied out the land. Twelve spies, one for each tribe. They came back. Ten spies said, there's giants in the land. We can't do it. We're all going to die. We're going to die. We're all going to die. You ever watch Winnie the Pooh? They're all Eeyore. Oh, no. It's horrible. We're all going to die. That's what these guys were saying. But not Caleb and not Joshua, who later became the leader here. They said, no, we can do it. We can do it. So 40 years later, all of the people who had rebelled had died. Joshua became the leader, and Caleb was the encourager, right? They were the two elders who went in the land. You need both of these. So what does this encourager do? This one, this is somebody that supplies comfort and, of course, encouragement. So um, you fit into one of those. Some people have more than one of these gifts. These are motivational gifts. You have one of these. I assure you, you have one of these. And when you operate in this gift you're going to see what you were meant to be in this church and in God's kingdom. When we run around and try to act like everybody else and think that everybody's got to be the same, everybody's got to be the prophet or everybody's got to be the, you know, the teacher or whatever, no, they don't. We need everybody. I wish I had more of these people, man. I, I need more of these people to step up. I'm exhausted. This church will grow when more of these people step up, Right? So we have an opportunity. We get into this 40 days of prayer, opportunity for you to pray through and ask God what he wants you to do, what, you know, how, how he wants you to take the next step. But I would encourage you, go home, get into the Bible, pray, talk to the Lord, and ask him, right? Look at multiple translations of what this passage says. I've tried to lay it out for you here, but look at multiple translations. And just because, let's say somebody's a prophet and they you know, speak... Or te, you know, foretell the word of God, that doesn't mean that they don't need to be educated. And that doesn't mean that they just prophesy out of their own mind. A prophet today is going to use the word of God, the scripture, the Bible. I like what Rick Warren says. He says, quit listening for a voice and start looking for a verse. Quit listening for a voice in your head or in your ear and start looking for a verse. Scripture says in Hebrews chapter 1 that in former times the Lord spoke through all these prophets, but now he has spoken to us how? Through his son. How do we find out about the son? We read the scripture. We read the New Testament. God speaks to me and through me because I'm in the word. I'm in the scripture. And that's also going to be, I think, the, the positive um, Result of this 40 days of prayer is it's going to keep you in the scripture for that entire six-week period as you're praying. So ask God, what is my gift? 